Welcome to the 6-8 Culture Podcast, an international community where we share stories of transformation and restoration from the inside out, based on justice, kindness, and humility. Come journey with us. I'm your host, Rob McKinley. Thrilled to share an incredible story on today's 6-8 Culture podcast. A story from Canada to Cambodia. One of being found through grace and losing it all to find it all. This is a story of a personal walk in justice, mercy, and humility. A walk of personal transformation which led to an entire community being transformed because one person said yes. When we think of stewardship, we consider our time, our talent, and our treasure. When I think of today's guest, I'm often reminded of one of my favorite authors, Brennan Manning. Manning exhorts us to define ourselves as radically loved by God. This is the true self and all else is an illusion. He also says that in a futile attempt to erase our past, we deprive the community of our healing gift. If we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, our inner darkness can neither be illuminated nor become a light for others. Well, the light certainly shines brightly out of tonight's guest, and his testimony is both powerful and transforming. Kevin Knight, welcome to 6-8 Culture Podcast. Yeah, well, welcome, Rob. It's great great to be able to talk to you. The one good thing about technology is the, despite COVID and other things, and we're halfway around the world from you, we're able to connect. So it's really great to be here. Yeah, thank you. Well, right now it is 8.30 p.m. on the west coast of Canada. What time is it there in Phnom Penh? Uh, 10.30 in the morning here. So we're 14 hours ahead of you guys. Okay, well, that's great. Well, let's get started. So you and I met one another about four years ago in a semi-outdoor Indonesian restaurant, I believe, in in Phnom Penh. Now, let's start here at the beginning. Can you share a little bit about who Kevin Knight is on more of a personal level? Wow, there's always a tough one to talk about yourself. But uh, yeah, it's been uh, quite the journey for me uh, to end up here in Cambodia. I was project manager and uh, working construction in in, uh, Canada. And then I fell ill to the drugs and alcohol, to addiction. And uh, I ended up losing everything in uh, many people know the downtown east side area. I Mm -hmm. ended up in the downtown east side, lost, broken. Yeah, very poor soul. And I ended Mm -hmm. up actually pushing my shopping cart with the rest of my belongings into a recovery center, Union Gospel Mission, as many know, in the Vancouver area. That time period that I got to know Christ and the freedom that was uh, available through him. So, wow, um, wow. Can I just stop you there for a second? Yeah, yeah. Kevin, what actually got you to that point that you said, I need to check myself into a recovery center? There, there was nothing else left. I, I was literally at the bottom and could not see a way out of the situation I was in. You know, I came from a loving family and upper middle class family had to finer things in life and opportunities. Yeah, just lost in this darkness uh, of the downtown east side and could not figure out how to get out of it. I'd used the Union Gospel Mission just for meals before, and I would never listen to a message or anything like that. But 
there was just a couple of pastors who I would listen to. And uh, eventually when I got to the bottom of my bottom, it was the only place I knew where to go was into the Union Gospel Mission. And that's where you first heard, heard the story of Jesus? Yeah, basically. Obviously, when you grow up, everyone knows stories and, and just celebrating Christmas alone, I guess, which a lot of people do. You know, you know, you know it, but you, you never have an experience with Christ. So for me, it was, I knew I was in the right place and I knew I was on finally taking the right steps towards what God wanted me to do in life and what he, what plan and purpose he had for me. Well, without getting into too much of where you're at there right now, yeah. how did you get from that place of a recovery center to finding yourself in, in the country of Cambodia? Uh, th that came quite early in my recovery, believe it or not. Because, because I had walked away from the Lord for so long, I guess he, I guess he was making up for lost time. But hmm. I walked into, uh, while I was in the recovery center, my first week actually, I went to church because that was part of the program. And it just felt like this was the right place to be. I had this feeling. I didn't know what it was. You know, I would recognize it as the Holy Spirit today, but I was supposed to be here among these people. Then the next week I went to a church and I didn't have the same feeling. It was basically a sermon that was really just talking to the congregation about what they were planning in the future. So I seeked out another church the next Sunday. So I'm only in the program two and a half weeks and been to a couple of Bible studies, didn't really know know what was going on. I walked into 10th Avenue Church. It was it was about missions again, and I sat in the back corner so I could escape if I didn't enjoy the sermon this week kind of deal. There was three speakers that day on Cambodia, but they spoke from the heart and they just shared stories. And I felt God like talking to me right there and just said, no, sorry, I have to take you back a little bit. In my addiction, I had had a dream and it was just that I was digging a ditch and bringing water to a village. Okay. Oh. And here I was crying, listening to these testimonies of, of people in, in Cambodia. And I knew the story of Cambodia and the killing fields and all the history already. Then I ended up taking communion. And I know for a lot of people, they don't believe in open communion. And, mm -hmm. you know, as me not being a Christian, but I sat at the back row. And by the time I went down, I took communion, came back around and they just felt this burning sensation happen in the middle of my body. And it just started to grow. When it reached my eyes, I just started weeping. And I was weeping and weeping and weeping, just like God was purging me or something. It was during my weeping that I just heard God say to me, just said, this is where that village is. And I knew it was the dream from three years before, just digging a ditch and bringing water to a village. Oh, that's so amazing. Pretty, yeah, really amazing time. <laughs> so at that point then, you're working through your recovery. You're still in Vancouver. And then how did you get over there to Cambodia? So I had a strong feeling that Cambodia was where God wanted me to be. And I ended up, it's really funny, right around the corner in the downtown east side was a mission group called Servants, called Servants Stages Poor at that time. Mm -hmm. But they had their first North American office in the downtown east side of Vancouver, because in poverty in, in Vancouver area, uh, the downtown east side would fit into that kind of category, I guess you would say. So, yeah. so I ended up joining up with them and interning with them in the downtown east side. They had heard while I was still in the program and we had met up and we had corresponded there. So they were part of my journey while I was still in the recovery center. Right. So when I came out, I ended up moving into that community. So it was the community of servants. So I was able to help minister to people that were in the same brokenness I was just six months before, be able to help them. My room had two double bunks and we would invite people in off the street. They were trying to get into recovery. I'd be able to share my journey with them. And it was a young, fresh journey. And you know, I had a lot of questions too, so it was so real. 
So I was able to really connect with people uh, who knew me from before, had seen me on the street and where, where I was there. So then at that point, you decide to take a trip with servants over to Phnom Penh. Yeah, but part of their internship is you have to do one month, you know, you live with a host family in the slums someplace around the world. Yeah. Because I had a strong calling, I felt, to Cambodia. We decided I would stay three months to really discern if this is where God wanted me. And yes, it was. Well, I went there. Well, even before I left, I was doing a lot of research on slum evictions in Cambodia for our justice group in Canada that was part of Servants. Mm -hmm. So I knew the the story behind the land evictions and government policies, whatever you want to say, and what was happening there. So I, I got involved right away when I came to Cambodia in the justice issues around slum evictions and land evictions. What did you see when you got there? What was the turning point? What made you just say, okay, I, everything is going to be changing in my life now? That was quite a traumatic moment. I was involved with this one community called Daikrahom, which means Redland. And it was mm-hmm. a community that was located right in the heart of the downtown of Phnom Penh. The land that they're on is actually worth $40 million at that time. Mm-hmm. And legally, they had the right to that land and the government wanted it along with the developers. They were offered the people $15,000 for the land. That's only if they had proper land title, which the poor do not have an opportunity to get in a lot of cases, the corruption it takes to be able to get the proper paperwork. Legally, it says that they own the land because they could prove that they lived on it for five years or longer. Mm -hmm. In in the middle of the negotiations, they said they wouldn't evict the people, but they came at two o'clock in the morning and with riot police, tear gas, and uh, hundreds of people to help demolish their community. So I was on site that night. I think there's an international law that you're not allowed to evict before 6 Mm a.m. So Cambodia does not follow a lot of the international laws or even their own laws. So they waited till exactly 6 o'clock in the morning and then started firing tear gas into the community. It was just very hectic. So one minute you're lifting up a home that the bulldozers just went through. People are trying to grab some belongings. You know, they're already the poorest of the poor, yet they have very little, but they're trying to grab what they can before the bulldozer comes through again. People were frantic, running around, looking for their children through the tear gas. It was just brutal. You're trying to help families get out with their kids. And and in a lot of cases, that's all they could grab is their kids. So after that happened that day, where did these people end up going? They were quite scattered, but there were trucks that were there. And so what ended up happening was they were told to get into these trucks. They had no idea where the trucks were going. They had no idea what was ahead, but it was like the only thing they had because they didn't have any. It was not like they own motos and own vehicles and can pack up their stuff and go or anything like that. It's whatever they could put on the trucks at that moment is all they could save. So they were moved 15 kilometers west of the city, basically an empty field. A lot of people were separated at that time. So we know one woman, it was two weeks before she found her kids because a neighbor had grabbed her kids and she only had a couple of her kids and the, and the other ones she couldn't find during the chaos. But she knew she eventually had to get on that truck because the kids could have been gone on another truck already. And it took her two weeks because they didn't go on the truck. They went with a neighbor. So she was two weeks frantic trying to look for her own children. You're there for three months. So then when that yeah. period expired, you had to go back to Vancouver, correct? Yeah, I had to come back to Vancouver and finish my internship with servants. So what was your process there in in Vancouver? How long did you end up going back for until you ended up coming back to Cambodia? I was about nine months 
before I came back. That was the longest nine months of my life. I just felt I wasn't there. I wasn't present in Vancouver. I was in Cambodia all the time. Right. You know, my heart was already there. My focus was there. My everything was already in Cambodia. I was only physically in body in in Vancouver, <laughs> which made it very, very difficult to be present and do what you needed to do to get back there. Yeah. And I just knew that wanted me involved in in the justice issues around this. So Amazing. how that looked, I did not know. I did not know at the time. But but you you didn't know. But you went on yeah. faith, and you yeah. ended up just selling everything and just moving yourself over to Cambodia. Yeah, well, I didn't. I, through my addiction, I didn't have a lot to pack up, so, yeah. <laughs> so, so that worked out quite fine. Um, uh, yeah, I, I had a backpack, and it was full of mostly books, actually. <laughs> so, so it was. Uh, yeah, I didn't have. I didn't have a lot to go with, which was fine because I was living in a, in a different slum community with a family, anyways. So, and definitely got involved with all the human rights organizations and things like that, and was working alongside them during this time period. But what ended up happening was that my heart was still with this one community. Yes, it's great to work on the bigger issues of the evictions per se, and and we were doing that. But I had a connection to this community, right? And so it was like, well, where are they? So in the time period where I was uh, away, they had actually been evicted again. So the second time. So where they took them to originally, they came again at five o'clock at night, bulldozed them down again. Okay, and they had very little sticks and tarps and a few handouts that some of the organizations had given them, like clean water uh, right. container and things. Uh, like how that. many people yeah. are we talking about here? We're talking about over six hundred, six seven hundred. So they got uh, evicted. And then is this some of the birthing of how Mana for Life ended up coming about? Yeah. So what ended up happening was they were evicted the second time. So again, the blue trucks were waiting there for them. Uh, only the people that were home were able to actually throw any belongings in. So some people went with nothing and they were driven 40 kilometers north of the city, which is a village, you know, that you actually uh, visited, Rob. And, right, uh, up there in Udong. Yeah. So they were moved out there in the middle of the night and just told, this is where you're living now. And they had nothing. One woman shared she had a baby and two kids. She had 500 real in her pocket, which is about 12 cents. And she had nothing. She said, I didn't even have a, a piece of rope. And what she meant by that was in Cambodia, there's a superstition that if you put rope around you when you're outside on the ground, then the snakes won't come. It's not true, but yeah. uh, that, you know, it's just a superstition that they yeah. feel. So she basically had nothing and relied on the generosity of the other poor just to be able to survive. It was just a brutal situation. So by the time I had come along, I went to visit them at the new site. It was pretty devastating to me. Everyone was living in just sticks and tarps and hardly anything to their name. And there was just a very dark sense, very dark presence in the whole community. They had lost all hope. They'd been evicted twice. Imagine you're thrown out like your garbage twice, right? Right. right. That no one cares about you. And it's like, why build anything back up again? Because, you know, it's just going to be taken away from me. I'd like to add a little context on the why. Cambodia or Kampuchea has a population of a little over 15 million people. But that number isn't very accurate as there are numerous Cambodians classified as homeless and not counted in the government census. The demographics of the country are very much influenced by the civil war and later genocide. 
50% of the population is under 22 years old. It also has the most female biased sex ratio in the Southeast Asian region. Its current state of being is very complex, with a huge portion of the population living with post-traumatic stress due to the war where over 2 million Cambodians lost their lives. The country has widespread poverty, pervasive corruption, lack of political freedoms, low human development, and a high rate of hunger. Cambodia has been described by Human Rights Watch as a relatively authoritarian coalition via a superficial democracy. The UN designates Cambodia as a least developed country, and the US World Justice Project's Rule of Law Index ranked Cambodia 125th out of 126 countries when it comes to justice. Now with all these odds stacked against the Cambodian people, their resilience and beauty shines incredibly brightly. On a personal level, I've been to Cambodia numerous times and I'm always taken back by the kindness of the people and the wisdom that they teach me. I'll be interviewing more NGO leaders and Cambodian influencers in the future. But for now, let's continue to hear more from Kevin Knight and his journey with the Cambodian people. How did the formation of Mana for Life end up evolving at this point? So I was with servants and at that time and then left servants. I have to bring my wife into this picture. It was my fiance at the time. Uh, Lekana, my wife, she was working for another organization. We decided that we really felt called to the poor. So we started Mana for Life for this particular community to deal with the issues there. And we were invited to, well, I was actually invited first to stay in the community, but I chose not to at that time. And it's because I was a single man. Right. And a lot of the men in the community were away. And so we have to be very careful in these kind of situations. So yeah. we waited till we were married before we actually moved into the village, but yeah. we'd been working with them for a year already. The first year is really just to get to know the community. I think a lot of mistakes, a lot of NGOs do, they go in and they start doing something right away right. and bring resources in and resources can really distort a community and even in their early growth stage. Don't get me wrong, when it's a disaster type situation, you need clean water, you need food, you need certain things. And yeah. that's also in a relocation site atmosphere, you need that also. Just bringing in set programs to be able to help people, I think we go about it backwards. I, uh, as you know, worked for a very well-known NGO before, and, and that yeah. was one of the reasons I was in Cambodia the first time I went there. And I believe Lekana also worked for them in, in the Cambodia office at one point. But one thing that I really came to deeply understand, especially in a country like Cambodia, where I believe there's over 3,500 NGOs there, correct me if I'm yeah. wrong, the vast majority of them sadly create a greater sense of dependency than actual transformation. And from what I've seen, uh, the work that you and Lekana have been doing through Mana for Life, dependency is certainly a cuss word in the vocabulary of what Mana <laughs> for Life is. Just some really great transformation. You introduced me to Moringa growth operation that you were starting there. And I learned all about the superfood Moringa that I never knew about before. I saw the mango tree school that you and Lekana had started there. So many children receiving quality education. And also because in Cambodia, there's only half days of school. 
So they were able to fill in that other part of the day where otherwise they could be quite vulnerable to predators and other things. And simultaneously, they're going to be able to actually learn some other things beyond what the Cambodian curriculum is there. So there's just a couple of things in there, but if you could touch on either those or a couple of more things that Mana for Life has been involved with in really transforming the village there, including the homes that have been built and just the whole ethos of the community going on up there in New Dong. Welcome back to our chat with Kevin Knight. In this segment, Kevin shares with us his first and greatest lesson in coming to terms with poverty and relationship. Yeah, um, the one thing that the poor get taken away from them quite quickly is their voice, okay? No one listens to the poor and they don't really have any clout that way. So our biggest thing was to be able to listen and mm -hmm. to be able to discern with them what the next steps would be. I like to start off with my biggest my biggest mistake. <laughs> my biggest mistake was actually at the very start, where the very first thing I did, I had all this training. We wanted to do participatory development is the term they use. It's really the participants in the community. The community is rebuilding their own community, mm. okay? And, uh, you know, I knew it all, had the training, you know, had training in it, knew what the direction we wanted to take this and everything else. Yet, there was a, one moment where it started to rain uh, really heavily. And I was in the city in my little place and it was raining into my place. And then I was upset taking a mop and cleaning it up. And then, then my tarps and everything else. And so my heart really went out to them that, you know, rainy season was just about to start. And what can I do? I can't build hundreds of homes and <laughs> right away. Right. Thought okay, at least we maybe I could raise a few dollars and get some tarps or something. At least put a new tarp on for the rainy season. So I was sharing that with my fiance at the time, but my wife Lekina the next day, and she shared a story with me about her family, and they grew up in the same situation where they were very very poor and had holes in the roof. And she has three sisters and a brother, and she remembers a time when. The rain was coming in so heavy, there was no dry place in the home. And her parents stood all night in the rain and the mud and held the one raincoat they owned over top of all the children all night long. Wow. And so she was in tears sharing this, and yeah. I, I was too. And it was like, okay, we have to do something, right? Yeah. So we came up with putting on tarp. So I got Lekanas organization, I got a local Christian high school and a whole bunch of other volunteers and we all came out to the community and got the community involved and we were all day out there and we put on 120 tarps that day. Incredible. Right? Wow. Yeah. And we had this sea of blue, right? It was like <laughs> perfect picture opportunity, everything else, right? So I had to go, I I'd actually had an accident, so I had to go to Thailand. I had a burn. On my, you on you my had head. an accident, Kevin. Uh, oh, I've had quite a few accidents <laughs> here, yeah. Well, yeah. maybe we can we, we can shift over to that for a minute, because <laughs> after my visit in Udong, I, uh, I was discovered from one of my Cambodian colleagues down in Phnom Penh that I had this crazy thing going on in my leg. I don't know if it was from a bite up there or from what it was, but we kind of figured it, it probably stemmed from there. I ended up finding myself in the Royal Phnom Penh Hospital and you were such a saint coming in there visiting me going down to the radiology ward doing some translating encouraging me 
because there were about 17 hours there that I didn't know if I was going to lose my leg completely or something even worse. And what really got me through so much of that was noticing how many of the staff, the doctors, the orderlies, the <laughs> nurses, everyone seemed to know you on a first name basis. <laughs> and you seem to have a good portion of the menu memorized as well. So that turned a painful moment of time into something pretty remarkably uh, memorable and funny for me. So sorry, I, I served your little story there about going to <laughs> no, that, that, Yeah, no, no, that, that's all right. That brought back good memories too. So yeah, I remember it turned out to be a hangnail, wasn't it, Rob? Yeah, no. yeah sure. <laughs> I, I only wish. <laughs> Well, we've been hearing from Kevin Knight from Mana for Life Cambodia. Stay tuned for part two, where Kevin will share some inspiring stories and insight into the world of justice, kindness, and humility, all the way from the Kingdom of Cambodia.